Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty, along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal. I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals to state senators to mayors to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. From the New Deal's annual conference, I am speaking today to Nevada Treasurer Zach Conine. Zach has led a bunch of innovative efforts around college savings, creating a rainy day fund, and we're going to talk about his path from the private sector into the treasurer's office and why everyone should care about who their state and county treasurers are. So Zach, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thanks so much for having me. So let's let's talk about that. I happen to think that um, being a treasurer is the best, most undervalued job uh, in elected office. Um, tell me about why you you may or may not agree with that after a couple years of service. Well, I certainly do, and I'm sure every other treasurer does, and, and probably my wife and two of my three kids probably agree with you. But outside of that, uh, I think you're right. And in, in the functionally, the treasurer is one of those jobs that people don't think about generally. And that's not bad. Like, it's okay for there to be parts of government that we don't have to think about all the time. In fact, uh, I would argue that in the past couple of years, we've had to spend a lot more time thinking about government working than perhaps uh, just everyday citizens and Nevadans specifically uh, should have to think. But um, generally, the treasurer is the state's chief investment officer, right? And so we've tried to use that to take a long-term view of government. So much of government is just, how do I get to the next election? How do I get through the next election? How do I get through the next legislative cycle? Um, and these sort of very small micro wins and losses. And we've tried to take the position and think more about the long-term, not just how's it going to work over a four-year term, but how's it going to work over eight years? How's it going to work over 20 years? Um, because most of the work that needs to be done in government isn't really short-term fixes. It's long-term structural changes. And give us a sense of the size of those investments and you know how you think about creating returns for the long term and where that money should should be should go for sure so in nevada uh, to scope it we've got about a three million people in the state 3.2 million people in the state most of those live in las vegas um, the size of our general fund when i got there was about 2.6 billion dollars now it's about 9.3 billion dollars wow. a lot of reasons for that um but some of which is is the work that we've done right um, we've got a rainy day fund that's about $1.2 billion, which is about four times larger than it's ever been. Um, we've got a pension in the mid-40s. Uh, we've got about $37 billion of college savings assets, not because uh, Nevadans are saving more for college, but because our programs are so good that people come from other states to invest with us. But we think about investments in the long term, looking at ways that we can fix structural government problems, right? And one of those, uh, it's pretty easy to understand because this happened in almost every state, was that during the middle of the pandemic, we had systems, unemployment systems, that could not handle the volume, right? And in Nevada, we had a system that hadn't been invested in in about 20 years. It was programmed in a language called COBOL, uh, which for <laughs> any of your listeners who have programmed COBOL, um, congratulations and make sure you're getting your discounts for eating early. The <laughs> It is not a language where, you know, it's super robust. It, maybe it was 20 years ago when they built it. 
And so we found a system that worked when we had 200 people filing for unemployment, but when we had to shut down gaming in March of 2020, and all of a sudden we had 20,000, 30,000 people, all the manual processes that were in place to make that system work didn't work anymore. They didn't scale. And so a lot of our work, a lot of our investing is remembering the social safety nets that didn't work during the pandemic. Things like unemployment, things like all of the individuals who were at risk of, of housing loss, right? Nevada's 105,000 affordable housing units shy of where we need to be. And trying to make investments in the long term, because you can't fix a problem like that quickly, right? We couldn't just run to Best Buy and get the upgraded version of the unemployment software and deploy it. We need to fix it when we have the time and the resources, and that it, that time is now. Yeah. So tell me, you, you got elected in 2018, so you didn't have much runway uh, to... Uh, in office before the pandemic hit, and yeah. you're now managing a global pandemic, which was affecting markets, right, that, that your pension funds are invested in, as well as having these systems. Bring us back to that time and how you tried to mobilize government to respond to this challenge. Yeah, it, it, we try not to think too much about it, um, but it did it did unveil a, a lot of things. I, there's a, a Charlie Munger quote that I like a lot, which is the um, when the tide goes out, you can see who's wearing a swimsuit, right? <laughs> and in periods of prosperity, states, especially states like Nevada, which are very sort of boom and bust historically, you know, gaming revenue, hospitality revenue, uh, sales tax, big driver of our economy. When things start getting a little worse, you start seeing where the holes are in an interesting way and can start to fix those. But at the beginning of the pandemic, right, when we found out we were going to shut the state down about two days later uh, from when from when we heard a decision that was made a couple hours before we heard, the first question was how do we protect and make sure that state functions keep going? And that was a payroll question. Can we make payroll for state employees? Are we going to be able to meet our obligations and all the vendors and all the people who are counting on the state to actually pay its bills, right? Are we going to be able to keep SNAP benefits going and WIC benefits going? Are we going to be able to make sure that veterans are going to be able to get you know what they need and that those state-sponsored homes are going to be able to be sponsored. So the first step was was cash flow, right? Are we going to be okay from a cash flow perspective? And we were going to be okay, right? At least for some amount of time. We didn't know how big the downturn was going to be and how long. And so you start being a little bit more conservative about how you're investing and trying to make sure that you've got money to pay the bills. That's kind of step one for any treasurer, right? Because if you can't pay the bills, uh, all the other fun stuff you might be trying to do, no <laughs> one's really going to care about because um, of the torches and the pitchforks and whatnot. And so we, we dealt with that. And then our next step was trying to back up from the immediate health crisis, right? I don't know if you remember this, but um, on the internet, pretty much everyone became an epidemiologist right away, uh, which was great, right? So we had millions of epidemiologists, <laughs> um, and we felt we should go where the ball wasn't and, and started spending time on what are the long-term economic drivers, what are the things we can try to get in front of. And we went back and we had pretty good uh, data about what had happened to the state during the Great Recession, right? Another period of slowdown. And in Nevada, housing instability is economic instability. Our largest revenue drivers are based on consumption. People have to feel comfortable buying things. People have to feel comfortable gaming, right? Whether or not they're in Nevada or they're coming from somewhere else uh, into Las Vegas or Reno or anywhere else to, to gamble. They have to be comfortable spending money. And in the Great Recession, as the foreclosure crisis expanded and people were at risk of losing their homes, we knew that they would not, you know, they stopped spending money. When they stopped spending money, then the government had to contract. When the government had to contract, the weakest among us uh, got hurt the most, as they always do. So how do we avoid that? And in Nevada, we went first at foreclosures. And with foreclosures, we knew 
right, from our work with banks and our work in the private sector, that the decisions the banks had made in 2008, 2009, 2010 to push families into foreclosure was broadly not effective for them, right? Not only did it make them look like cartoon villains, right, but it just financially wasn't effective. And so we started reaching out, and California uh, Governor Newsom had effectively bullied the banks into offering forbearance, uh, bullied in the nicest possible way, uh, <laughs> bullied the banks into offering forbearance to their folks, not requiring people to miss payments to go into a foreclosure avoidance process. Because remember, from a credit perspective, if you had a foreclosure during the Great Recession, that probably happened in 2012, 2013, seven years to get off your credit. So you would have just gotten to a place where you could get back into sort of a normal credit universe and then the pandemic happened, right? And we knew we had to stop that. That just created a malaise for half a decade in Nevada. And so we reached out to these banks and we said, hey, this didn't work for you last time. We offer forbearance to Nevadans because if you don't offer forbearance to Nevadans, um, you know, it's going to be a problem for like everybody. Now, one of the interesting things you mentioned, sort of the curiosity of being treasurer, uh, when I first took the job, a lot of people came up to me and they were like, look, it's a great job, but nobody knows what the treasurer does. Well, here's the other thing. Nobody knows what the treasurer doesn't do. And so when we start calling banks and saying in the nicest Harry Reid-esque tones, like, hey, we think this would be good for you. Don't you think this would be good for you? They didn't know that the treasurer has absolutely no oversight authority over banks at all. Um, but they would all take the call. And so we got them all to offer forbearance to Nevadans. And so we did what any good politician would do. Um, we got on social media and TV and everything else like, oh, we got forbearance. Nevadans, congratulations. Like, we're here for you. Uh, moving on. Yeah. And then Nevadans started calling the banks to get the thing that we had told them we had gotten for them. And they ran into the same kind of customer service problem that we'd run into uh, back when I was in the gaming industry, right? Great idea, great casino promotion. Doesn't make its way down necessarily to the people answering the phones. So the people on the phones are like, we don't know what you're talking about. You got to go into miss a couple of payments, go into forbearance. <laughs> now, thankfully, Nevadans are not shy. Uh, and so we started getting calls, right? We started getting calls from folks who were like, hey, you know, you said that we were going to get this. And I called and we don't get this. What the hell? And that happened a couple of times. And we called back to the, the, the banks, and they were like, yeah, it just hasn't made its way down. And eventually what we started doing is I would get, you know, Susie Nevadan on the phone. She'd call in, right, have it sent to me. And then I'd call the vice president from the bank on the other line and merge the two calls together. And be like, hey, Bob, uh, you know, I know you offered forbearance to Nevadans. That's so great, so good of you. I actually have Nevadan on the line who wasn't able to get the forbearance from whichever bank or mortgage service company. Would you sort this out? And we found we had to do that about twice with each bank. Right. But that type of direct involvement, I think, helped to make a difference there. And that helped us remove one of the big risk things off the table. Because in the pandemic, at least from our perspective, it was about risk triage. How do we remove the sort of biggest concern, right? State insolvency. And then go to the second biggest concern, which was people not being able to stay inside their homes. That then, of course, translated into rental assistance work and a lot of a lot of work in that place, and then into the support of businesses, specifically small businesses, specifically businesses owned in disadvantaged communities, to make sure that they were still going to make it through, right? So just sort of trying to move risk off the table at a time of massive uncertainty. So you came from the private sector, and I think um, in the, how you describe it, it's a good understanding of pressures that private sectors uh, face and how, to, how the private sector thinks about it that then the public sector can leverage or... Uh, complement. So tell us about that path from the private sector into the public sector. What's what's been surprising? What's what's hasn't been surprising? How, how has it informed your your governance? You know, I think that 
a lot of people will say the government should work more like a business, right? And it is deeply not that, right? I think one of the things to, to remember is the stakeholder group is very different. In a business, your stakeholders are the owners of the business, arguably, and should be the employees of the business. If you're a public company, you've got stockholders, right? Like those are the people who you are trying to create more value for. In a state perspective, your stakeholders are everyone, not just the people who voted for you, not just the people who donated to you, but but everyone in the state. And so you, you think about that work more in a rising tide than a picking winners or losers. And that's a different it's a different mindset, and it causes you, I think, to triage things based on not just what will create the most value for a segment, but what can be done quickly, what can be done well, and what has the broadest impact, right? Getting forbearance for the six or so hundred thousand Nevadans who own a home helped. Moving on to then the people who were in apartments helped, right? But we didn't spend our time saying, okay, here's a community that has right this need because all these other communities had a need right so you you spend that time a little more broadly you know i i moved from the private sector into the public sector like so many nevadans in uh in public office because harry reed told my wife he thought i should run for treasurer right <laughs> um i was running a, a small consulting company we were a couple of hundred employees under management a bunch of restaurants some other hospitality plays right it was Great. It was totally fine. Uh, and my, my wife, who is much smarter and better looking than I am, uh, was an intern for Senator Reed back in the day. And she was a dean at the law school. And he was teaching at the law school post leaving the Senate. Uh, and one day kind of waved her over and said, hey, you know, I think your husband should run for Senate, uh, for uh, treasurer. Come see me. Um, and she was okay. And called his assistant, said, when can we come by? And she said, how about Thursday at one? And I said, oh, we have a conflict, like with two work. And she's like, yeah, what about Thursday at one? Um, and, <laughs> and so we moved the thing. We went to meet the senator. Uh, it was a fascinating uh, conversation, as, as most people will, who have had that conversation will tell you. Uh, not a long one. And uh, and then we were kind of off to the races, right? Um, you know, public service seems to me like a wonderful way to give back to a state that's given me so much, right? I moved out to Nevada right after college uh, to Laughlin, Nevada. It was 126 degrees when I got there. Um, I lived in a motel, uh, actually in Bullhead City, Arizona, for about six months before uh, moving up to Las Vegas and and grew in the gaming community, got to do some really neat things in finance, went to law school at night uh, before opening another casino, opened a bunch of restaurants, met my wife. We've got three amazing kids. Like We've gotten so much out of the state. And it seemed like this was an opportunity to to give a little bit back. Tell me Senator Reed's pitch. Like like how does he how does he take <laughs> somebody who has a nice uh, who has a nice life and say you know what you should do is make your life really hard for a fraction of the money. Yeah, and I you know I so many people have so many great Senator Reed stories. I was reading the the one earlier today. A, a colleague down at New Deal showed me the the story from uh, President Obama's last book about the conversation that he and Senator Reed had, uh, which was effectively not a. It wasn't a pitch. Yeah. And that was a, that's an important thing to know with Senator Reid. He would tell you about things that were happening in the future as though they had happened yesterday. Um, and so when we met him, he came in and he said, uh, you know, I think you're going to be a great treasurer. <laughs> Not the best treasurer. Probably top five. Maybe top three. I don't know. He looks at my wife. He says, he's going to be a great treasurer, don't you think? He looks at me. He's like, you're going to be a great treasurer. What do we have to talk about? And he sits down. And I said, well, sir, I have some questions. And he said, why? Right. <laughs> and... 
And, and we talked through a couple of the concerns I had moving, to, but it was a 20 minute conversation, right? And, and the rest of our conversations primarily from then on for the next couple of years were, were text-based and we see each other at an event or whatever. Um, but he was not a not a man who used 10 words when five would suffice and certainly not a man that would use five words when no words would suffice. Um, but he was right, right? And and whatever, whatever the thing was he saw, whatever the opportunity and the fit, right? Whatever combination of political practical experience uh, for whatever reason, right? It gave us an opportunity to do this work. And, and we've tried to lean in as much as possible to make the treasury uh, not just something that has to exist, um, but something that can create other value, right? Let's talk about other value. So you've been on the forefront of creating um, opportunities for people to invest for college savings, um, pr protect their, create more resiliency for the next downturn. Um, Tell me about the things you're excited about that you're working on that are outside of the sort of the nuts and bolts of, of managing the investments for the state of Nevada. Yeah, I think when we look at kind of long-term investing, it, all investing is take a, taking a little bit of opportunity off the table now to create more later, right? It's the, it's the millennials, which I am one, which I'm constitutionally required to mention, <laughs> um, but it's the millennials not buying that avocado toast so we can get the house, right? Um, but in actuality, it's taking a little bit of money and saving for college. You know, we have programs like prepaid tuition, which is in its 25th year right now, where someone who bought that program uh, for their child who's using it now would have paid $6,000 for four years of college and gotten $26,000 worth of value. That's pretty good, right? Um, when people are saving for higher education. And that's been, a, that's been a change for us, and I think it's a change for a lot of folks in the higher education space. It's not just about college anymore, right? When I grew up, it was university or like, you know, we're never going to talk to you again. Um, and that worked out for me, but that's not everybody's path. And realizing that government needs to support and help folks who want to get a great class, a great job into the middle class by joining uh, a union um, and getting an apprenticeship, getting a certificate degree, right? All of those things, we need to be able to support them. And in the treasury, we want to not just give people the tools, but make sure that we are adjusting and changing the tools for the population. Here's an example. A lot of college savings offices, certainly the Nevada treasury, when we got there, were very, very focused on selling stuff, right? And so it was like we were always talking about how important it was that individuals were housed. You got to have a roof over your head. It's in the hierarchy. Like you need these things, right? And then people would say, oh, my God, that's great. I do need a roof over my head. How can I do that? And we were like, well, let me sell you a mortgage, right? We weren't actually providing the thing. We were trying to sell tools that could be a route to the thing. And so we really shifted the, the branding and the focus of our college savings work around helping people plan for, save for, and pay for not just here are ways that if you're in a certain tax bracket, you can save a bunch of money by not paying taxes through a 529, though that's great, people should use the tool, uh, but making sure that we have a scholarship database that brings all these things together, providing services, this has been a big one. Nevada uh, is pretty low on the list from a FAFSA uh, creation, the free uh, application for federal student aid, the thing you have to fill out to get Pell Grants and subsidized staff loans. Nevada's always been pretty far down on the list. It's not because people don't have the need. It's not because they wouldn't apply. It's because the FAFSA is sort of a pain in the butt to fill out. And so we've worked at the state level to make sure there were resources available, but we've also worked at the federal level to get them to change around the form so that for first-generation students, for students where the family does not speak English as a primary language, they're able to get through that process because that money is out there, right? A lot of our work is, is, is less about coming up with some sort of brave new idea and more about the nuts and bolts 
execution of that idea when it actually hits people, right? It's, a, it's much less theoretical, I think. And, that, and a lot of good government in our experience is that, right? It's not, it's not putting a man on the moon. It's making sure that a guy knows that he has money in his pocket. He just has to fill out a certain form or he needs to go to a certain place. I do feel like that is um, uh, a, a value that you could bring from the private sector because most businesses, right, there's a million great ideas. It's all about execution and meeting your customer where they are. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I did that mindset. Did your experience help inform um, some of these efforts on a focus on execution? Because in politics, there's a big temptation to, to come up with a new idea, send out a press release, and then frankly kind of forget about whether it's being executed yeah. well or not. The mission accomplished banner behind you, right? And <laughs> yeah. like right at the beginning of the mission. And and it still it still happens. It's a the the incentive structure isn't necessarily set up in the way that you would want to avoid it, right? Like the incentive structure is to get that hashtag and those retweets and then not actually execute. Um, that has never really struck me as a good use of time. Um, and there are so many pieces of government that we found in the state where someone has come up with a great idea, passed a piece of legislation, done the press release on it, and then never followed up. No one in the executive branch has ever executed on it. And so functionally, all of that work was wasted. Um, and in the private sector, that doesn't happen as much, generally because the work to get to that place is coming out of someone or some group's pocket. And in the state, in government, it's often coming out of sort of this amorphous government pocket, right? And so the, the accountability isn't always there. Um, but there is so much good government work that can be done just executing on the stuff that you're supposed to be doing, finding ways to remove those friction points, right? Looking at things um, the government's done for a long time and saying, Shh, do we do we need to do this, right? Is there some sort of constitutional or statutory reason to do it, right? Um, are we just doing it because the last guy did it, or last gal did it? Um, and, and pushing on those, right? Because it, the worst thing about government is momentum, right? We are going to do the same thing we did yesterday, today. We're going to do the same thing tomorrow that we did today, it, right? We're just going to keep doing the same work. The best thing about government is momentum. If you have something oriented in the right way, there isn't a ton of motivation to screw it up for the sake of screwing it up. It's not the case in the private sector, right? In the private sector, you want to put your own thumbprint on it, right? You want to make sure that I come from the restaurant space. You want to make sure that the happy hour is your idea, right? Um, but a lot of times that's sort of chaos for the sake of chaos, right? It's change for the sake of change. You don't get a ton of that in government, at least it, not on the on the law side, but on the executive branch side, because most executive branch employees, most civil servants, they're not in it for the chaos, right? They're, right. They want to have a good job, and they want to have an okay pension, and they want to make sure they can go home and spend time with their kids, right? They're not looking for, for the firefight. Um, and so helping to orient those civil servants in a direction that is more effective generally sticks. Um, and so when we spend the time doing that to, to take a process and really strip it down to its core, it, to the to the requirements, and then build up the way around it, uh, we found that to be remarkably lucrative from an efficacy perspective. I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah, I like I like your insight of mo momentum being the both the best and the worst thing, and um, more momentum and less inertia right. is always right. is always good. Let's move from governance to politics. Yep. Uh, you are uh, in a swing state that will, um, you know make big decisions for not only the state of Nevada, mm -hmm. but frankly, for the entire world. Mm -hmm. um, how are things looking right now? You know, I, I think Nevada 
well, let's look at the last election and let's look at the next one, right? So the last election, um, what, all the statewide candidates were up, the six constitutional officers. I used to refer to us as the six cons. I've been asked to stop. Um, but the six <laughs> constitutional officers were up last time, um, and we split them, went three and three, right? It was uh, we had five uh, Democrats and one Republican going into the election. Um, our governor, uh, Governor Sisolak, a Democrat, lost, the only incumbent governor to lose in the in the country, to, to Governor now Lombardo, who's a Republican. Our lieutenant governor spot switched. Um, and our controller, who's basically the state's chief accountant, uh, a counterpart of mine, um, switched from a, a Democrat uh, to a Republican. And we kept... Uh, the treasurer's role, and then the secretary of state and the attorney general, right? And what we found in Nevada, I think, is is true uh, in a lot of places, and we saw it last week in Kentucky. Candidates matter, right? Um, a lot of folks are, are, are chirping and spending time talking about how great the reaction and the result was in Kentucky where we won the governor's race, and that is good. That is great. But we lost the treasurer, the auditor, the secretary of state, the attorney general, every other statewide race we lost, and not by a little bit, right? By eight points, by 10 points in these races. The candidates matter, right? And I think what we're certainly seeing in, in places like Nevada is that the voter is, thankfully, aware enough that when there are candidates, you know, the attorney general, the secretary of state, and I all ran against um this is a legal term for that, but wackadoos, right? And and that that mattered, right? We were able to to break apart from the pack. Senator Cortez Masto, who won re-election, um, has been doing an amazing job in the state, uh, talking to Democrats, talking to Republicans, talking to independents, talking to our rural communities, which are easy to sort of ignore if you if you want to just look at the math, right? You know, Two million people in Clark County, and why are you going to go out to West Wendover? But there are voters out there, and there are people out there that matter. And we won because we pulled Republican votes over to the Democratic side. Um, and so when I take that and look at what happened in Kentucky, and then look at that uh, as it as it moves to national, you know, we have to be able to go and meet people where they are. We have to realize that you know, Senator Reid always said, like every blade of grass, right? Like don't leave an election uncontested because if you do. You know, you're definitely not going to win any votes if you don't try, right? Um, and you're going to win some if you do. And so when we look at 24, I think that is so important uh, from a national perspective. We have a Senate race. Senator Rosen's up. It's so important from that Senate race. We have uh, assembly races and Senate races all up and down the state. Candidates matter. They're always going to matter. Um, and I think we, it is to our disservice when we just assume that the, the demographics are destiny, right? We've got to do the hard work on the ground. And just out of curiosity, for those of us who are outside Nevada, I'm a Californian, and we want to help and assist in Nevada, um, what are the things that you're looking for from the party, uh, from people who are, you know, who are thinking about the president's reelection? Um, how, how best can they leverage their energies in your state? Yeah, it's great. And, and there are groups that do this type of work. Um, there's a, a friend of ours uh, who has a group called Sister District, right, which is basically taking um, taking areas that are just very hard D that are going to be D that don't need to turn out voters and bringing that energy and helping to knock doors in other states, right? So certainly there's always an opportunity to come to the state uh, and knock doors to work with um, whatever operation the culinary puts up to work with the state Democratic Party, which um, we had a little bit of uh, uh, 
moment where we were more of a democratic socialist of America state party. Uh, that's over, right? We had our crazy college time, and now we're back um, <laughs> to pan our bills. And uh, so, you know, the Democratic Party is as strong as it's ever been. Um, with both a combination of sort of the old Reed Machine folks as well as newer folks who maybe came out of that but didn't grow up in it. Um, and so, you know, you can work through the parties. Our, our, our labor organizations are going to be a massive piece of the turnout effort, as they always are. Um, and so that that's how to help. I mean, you can always send money. We always appreciate it when people send money. We certainly won't turn it away. Um, but in Nevada, it's a door-to-door game. We are winning uh, at the door as we are winning at the doorbell. What's next for you? How do you think about where you can best serve uh, and, you know, what Senator Reid would want you to do versus uh, what, your, what, what your family and other folks uh, may want you to do? Yeah, I, <laughs> I think Senator Reid uh, would tell me, and I would try not to presume, um, and assuming, uh, unfortunately, since we lost him a few years ago, I don't know that I'll ever get good color on that. I, I do know that, you know, his focus was always on letting people find their own path and then sharply correcting them when he thought that path wasn't right. Um, so we'll, <laughs> we'll take the first part and try to run with it. Um, you know, for us, we are really focused on how do we use the time in front of us as effectively as possible. I've got three years and one month. It's about a thousand days. And so how do we take the work that we've done and make sure that it's not just, um, it's not just inertia, right, to your point, but it's momentum. Um, how do we make sure that we have solidified and calcified the things that we want to solidify and calcify? And part of that's triage, right? What are the what's the work that we are sure we can get done and execute? What's the work that we want to set up and and have ready for the next person? How do we make sure um, that the treasury, which has changed pretty significantly in the five years I've been there, um, either stays changed or more effectively remains nimble enough to go where it needs to go and where it can help people, right? From a political side, you know, we are spending a lot of time thinking about what's next. Um, best advice I ever got uh, from a fellow who ran a, a company that I worked for, a hedge fund that I worked for, uh, portfolio manager, was his his entire thing was about keeping his opportunity cost as high as possible. At any time, he wanted to be doing the thing that he wanted to be doing the most. He wanted to be hard to change directions because what he was doing was so good um, in anything. and. And that's that's where we are, right? Like my life is amazing, my kids are amazing, my wife's amazing. We have two great dogs, Democracy and and Kino, because um, <laughs> you know Vegas. And and we are trying to do as much good work as we can. I have an amazing team around us, both political uh, and and governance. And so we just want to make sure to maximize that time as much as possible. And if we end up running for something else, that's great. And we're going to do everything we can to win it. If we end up going back to the private sector, that's great. And we're going to do everything we can to make that effective and, and help as many people as possible. Um, our opportunity costs are high. Uh, and I feel comfortable with that. I was, I, that was my last question actually was about your dog named democracy and do you ever get in trouble for yelling no democracy no you know it's it's, it's uh so democracy de- so there were two uh democracy and liberty liberty passed away a, a few uh, about a month and a half ago um but they have had really long lives they're both rescue dogs they're german shepherd corgis which is a very strange thing it's probably best not to think too much about it but um and they weren't they weren't related and uh, they were both they both came out of the great recession and so democracy was actually left in a house um unsupervised a deeply tragic thing for a couple of days and was just in an awful state right so his his middle name is freddie and uh liberty's middle name was fanny 
and uh, and the two of them <laughs> came together, and you know we got Libby as a puppy, and she lived to be seventeen. Democracy's about nineteen right now. Wow. It's very strange. Um, I'm not suggesting that I should start like some sort of dog longevity company, <laughs> but I could. Um, and Kino came and joined our family a couple of weeks ago after Liberty passed because Democracy had never been with another dog, and he just got weird anxious right away. And so Kino's middle name is Tonopause, which doesn't really mean anything for anybody outside of Nevada, but Tonopause is a small uh, town about halfway between uh, Reno and and Nevada and uh, Las Vegas. Um, dogs are great. Pets are great. I don't really like cats. It's just <laughs> I'm allergic, uh, but dogs are great and there's something about unconditional love um, that you you get from your family you certainly get from dogs and you absolutely will never get from voters and that's okay yeah yeah it's there's not a it's not a bad thing after a long day uh to come home and and be be welcomed instead of being told about potholes and uh other problems that people are, are facing yes yes the, the dogs have never brought up esg which i appreciate <laughs> Uh, well, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for being a member of the New Deal. Uh, we are excited uh, to have you uh, as part of this. And I think um, that we have a number of really smart treasurers in New Deal. And I think that when you look at the collective impact that New Deal's had over time, a big part is because we've had treasurers do a lot of work around college savings and other programs that have that have profoundly uh, impacted their communities and been able to be replicated uh, in other states. And so thank you for, for everything you do. Well, thank you for having us. And, and thanks for doing this podcast, right? Because especially during and coming out of the pandemic, the conversations around how those ARPA dollars were going to get invested, what communities were doing to recover. I mean, New Deal was so necessary at that time. I joined in the middle of the pandemic and information both from the podcast, but also from other sources through New Deal helped us do a better job. And I think like if there's an organization that can help its members get better at the thing that made them join in the first place, can't be better than that. Thank you. It's kind of you to say. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.